0: Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Theologian Fleming Rutledge describes John the Baptist as arguably the most central figure of Advent and the most single-minded person who ever lived. Outside of the core events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's uncommon for all four Gospels to contain the same story. But John the Baptist appears in all of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was admired by the people, and he was feared by Herod. Outside of Jesus, John the Baptist's death gets more attention than any other death in the New Testament. Jesus himself stressed the significance of John the Baptist's life and ministry, arguing that at least from a human perspective, John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. And yet we don't usually pay much attention to John the Baptist. And that's partly because, and I say this with all due respect, that John the Baptist was kind of a weirdo. He lived in the woods. He wore ugly and uncomfortable clothes, ate bugs, and preached fire and brimstone. You could describe John the Baptist as a firebrand, an activist, a doomsday prophet, and a shock jock, All rolled into one. If many people would have considered him a freak back then, how many of us would consider him a freak today? If John the Baptist were still around, I doubt many churches would consider employing him. You probably wouldn't hire him to babysit your kids. His words wouldn't work well on a Christmas card. You can picture a Christmas card. Merry Christmas, you brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Happy holidays. By the way, this is what I want for Christmas. I don't know. I couldn't think of anything. I don't write Christmas cards. So the question is, why does John the Baptist get so much attention at Advent? Why do the writers of the four Gospels and even Jesus himself think so highly of John the Baptist? What makes him so special? Why did people listen to him back then? And why should we still listen to him today? Well, I propose that this rugged, controversial, in-your-face preacher actually has a lot to teach us today, and that we must seek to understand him if we hope to understand Advent. So open up to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for people like John the Baptist, the figures in scripture that you use to accomplish your purposes. These people that we read about. Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we read more about John the Baptist. But I also pray that we would see how John the Baptist points to your son, Jesus Christ. I think John the Baptist himself would probably... Not like a sermon that was all about him and didn't point our eyes to Christ. That's the whole reason that he lived. And so, Father, I pray that we would look to your son, Jesus Christ, today as we read about John the Baptist. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the guests that are among us. I pray that we would be welcoming and hospitable to them. And I pray that our worship today would be honoring to you and building up for us we ask this all in your son's name amen well last week we introduced advent this churchy sounding word for christmas that doesn't get used very much these days even amongst christians the word advent means arrival or appearance we read from malachi chapters three and four The final book of the Old Testament, where God promises his people that someday a messenger will come in the spirit and power of Elijah and that after that messenger comes, the day of the Lord will come shortly after. And that day of the Lord was something that God's people looked forward to. It was a day of cleansing and justice, forgiveness and victory for God's people. It wasn't a day that they feared. It wasn't a day that they dreaded. It was a day that they anxiously awaited. But then we also discussed where we fall on God's timeline of redemption. We live in this time between. And we say that because we live after Jesus' first arrival in the humble surroundings of Bethlehem. And yet we're still waiting for Jesus' second arrival in power and glory for all the world to see. So in this time between... In a sense, the wait is already over. The Savior of the world has come. In a sense, the powers of Satan, sin, and death have already been defeated. In a sense, the light of God's presence has already shone in our dark, cold, and fallen world. But then, in another sense, in this time between, we're still waiting. Because Jesus hasn't returned yet. In another sense, we still see Satan, sin and death wreaking havoc in our lives. In another sense, our world is still just as dark and cold and fallen as it was before. So here we are, stuck in the middle in this time between. And that's why at Advent we look back to the manger where Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago and look forward to the clouds where he'll come again. We're still waiting for the day of the Lord, patiently and confidently, knowing that when God calls his people to wait on him, he never lets them down and he won't let us down. But before we get to Jesus's birth and the story of Advent, the Christmas story, we encounter somebody else. It all starts with a husband and wife named Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're an upstanding, righteous, old couple, but they have one big weakness. In a society that valued children far more than ours, they were childless. Now, that was not by choice. It was a form of suffering for both of them. Some people may have presumptuously considered their lack of a child proof that they were guilty of some hidden sin or proof that they were cursed by God. But it's through this unlikely couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that God would fulfill the promise he made at the end of the Old Testament. It's their son who would be the beginning of the good news. So reading in Luke chapter one, starting in verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. To take away my reproach among people. So one evening. While Zechariah stands in the temple. Doing his priestly duties. He hears a message from God. And as we mentioned last week. This was after some 400 years. Of silence. Generations had passed. Since the last prophet spoke. So when Zechariah sees an angel. When he hears a message. It's safe to assume That he's all ears. This angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that he and Elizabeth will have a son. Now before you think that's too crazy, keep in mind that it's not the first time that God gave two old people a baby. Abraham and Sarah had a similar experience in the book of Genesis. But this unexpected pregnancy doesn't come without a catch. This won't be just another baby for Zechariah and Elizabeth to love and brag about and raise. This baby is not just for their own personal enjoyment. This baby is set apart for a unique role in God's story of salvation. The baby's name, John, means God is gracious. And his calling is that of the messenger that Malachi talked about so long ago. The second, Elijah, preparing the way of the Lord. Now, understandably, Zechariah is overwhelmed. You probably would be, too. He asks for a sign to prove that this will really come to pass. But Gabriel knows that deep down, Zechariah doubts. So Gabriel gives him a sign, all right. But the sign is also a form of judgment. Zechariah will be unable to speak until the baby comes. He'll have plenty of time to sit and think about what God is doing. Plenty of time to learn his lesson. So when Zechariah comes out of the temple, everyone around knows that something strange has happened. But they don't know what. Sure enough, Elizabeth responds with joy and faith when she realizes what God has done for her when she conceives. And then, sure enough, as these things go, around nine months later, that baby is born. Instead of taking the traditional route of giving him his father's name, the baby is named John, just like Gabriel said. And as soon as that baby is named, Zechariah can speak again. The first words out of his mouth are words not of anger, not of frustration, but worship. And his words are a great summary of Who John will be Luke chapter one, verse seventy six. And you, child, will be called prophet of the most high, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So from the very get-go, we know that John will be different. His birth is a miracle. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's the messenger that God's people have been eagerly expecting for 400 years. That's a lot of pressure to put on this kid, don't you think? That's a lot of pressure to put on his parents. Will John prove to be up to the task? We pick up in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. One thing I find interesting about these two verses, Luke chapter three, verses one and two, is that you see these names of these high profile, incredibly powerful people, these people who are in charge of so much you have all the earthly glory, and yet honestly, those names really don't matter very much compared to the end of verse two. That the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. God's working through this prophet, not these rulers, not these kings, not these powerful figures with titles and authority. He's working through John the Baptist. Verse three. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He therefore said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them. And be content with your wages. So if you fast forward about 30 years. You see that John is all grown up. And John has wholeheartedly embraced the mission that God gave him. From before he was even born. He calls people to repent of their sins. In direct and even offensive terms. You brood of vipers is not a good church growth strategy. He baptizes them. Symbolically cleansing them of all their previous misdeeds he even gets a nickname along the way John the Baptist John the baptizer he challenges them to bear fruit of holiness rather than just arrogantly assuming that God will turn a blind eye to their wickedness because of what family they came from and he warns them of God's coming judgment if they don't heed his words the axe is laid at the fruit at the root of the trees. In other words, John the Baptist is not embarrassed about his expectations. John the Baptist is not embarrassed about the fact that when he talks about repentance, he expects moral reform. He clearly believes that a repentant person's actions will change. They'll be more generous, more honest, more peaceful, and more content than they were before. In other words, John the Baptist believes that real repentance has legs. Real repentance does something. But before you think that John the Baptist is nothing more than an old-fashioned, angry, moralistic prude who likes to yell a lot, keep in mind that he has more to say. Pick up in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. John's not just here to get people's lives in order. He's not just here to tell people to be better, do better, act better, live better. He's here to point people's eyes to the one coming after him. When people speculate that John might be the savior. He quickly corrects them. He's just preparing the way. John is the fullback blocking for the running back. He's the police officer ahead of the presidential motorcade. He's the opening act before the concert begins. John Calvin referred to John the Baptist as the lantern which shone in front of the son of God. John the Baptist remembers his role, and he announces that the one coming after him, the Lord, has a greater power, a greater baptism, and a greater authority than he could ever even pretend to have. And yet, even though he isn't the main attraction, John the Baptist's preaching is controversial enough to get him thrown in prison by Herod. Now, by this point in the story, John the Baptist fades into the background of the New Testament and Jesus takes center stage. But before John the Baptist dies, he sends messengers to Jesus to ask him if he really is the Messiah. It almost appears as though John the Baptist may have wrestled with doubt late in his life. But make no mistake, John fulfilled the calling that God gave him. He faithfully prepared the way of the Lord. And when he's executed by Herod, Jesus mourns his death. Now again, some of this may be interesting. It's all well and good to know your Bible a little bit better and maybe know more about John the Baptist. But why is he still important today? Sure, he came. He did his job admirably. But he's dead now. So why are we still talking about him? Well, I'll give three big reasons why John the Baptist is still worth talking about for Christians like us. Reason number one is that we still need to hear John the Baptist's message. As we prepare to remember and celebrate the past arrival of Jesus in just a couple weeks, perhaps we should step back, take a moment, and ask ourselves, how might we need to repent this Christmas season? What false idols have we been worshiping? Which forms of wickedness have we been guilty of ignoring, hiding, justifying or promising to repent of someday? Maybe just not now. And as we consider where and how God might be calling us to repent at this moment. Don't forget John the Baptist preaching that repentance bears fruits. Repentance is not just a change to what we think or how we feel. It's not just theoretical. (laughs) Repentance changes what we do. And we ask God to change our hearts. To truly repent from the inside out. C.S. Lewis once wrote that, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. In other words, repentance is not just another shallow attempt at self-improvement we don't repent just because we're being less effective than we ought to be or because we're missing out on our best life now or because we're not fulfilling our potential or because you know i think the world would just be a little bit better served if i acted a little bit nicer that's not repentance we repent because god commands us to do so for our good and for his glory We repent because we recognize that he is king and we are not. We repent knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins through Jesus Christ. So we lay down our arms and we surrender to the king who deserves our worship and deserves our obedience. And again, God is gracious to help us in this. The Holy Spirit can make the rocky sins of our lives flat. He can make the crooked desires of our hearts straight that we might be prepared for the Lord's arrival. So that's reason number one. But not only do we need to hear John the Baptist's message, reason number two we need to talk about him is that we follow in his footsteps. We too are called to bear witness to Christ. We, too, are called to point people's eyes to him. We, too, are called to announce the glories of Jesus to this watching world. We consistently proclaim this shocking good news that the one whose sandals we are not even fit to untie died on the cross for our sins. That we might be reconciled to God. And here's the thing. You don't have to live in the woods Wear scratchy clothes or eat bugs to follow in John the Baptist's footsteps. A prayer in the break room can point your co-workers' eyes to Christ. A Bible in your backpack can point your classmates' eyes to Jesus. A cross on your Christmas tree can point your family's eyes to Christ as well. We are called to bear witness to Jesus the same way John the Baptist did. Now, late in John the Baptist's ministry, some of his disciples worried that people were leaving him to follow Jesus instead. He was losing numbers. But this didn't seem to bother John at all. He had embraced his role to become less in order that Jesus might become greater. John the Baptist never put himself in the spotlight, John the Baptist was the spotlight. Directing people's gaze to Jesus. May the same be true of us. So we still need John the Baptist's message. We follow in John the Baptist's footsteps. But then last but not least, reason number three we listen to him today is that we're called to share John's joy. In Luke chapter one, before John and Jesus were even born, their mothers met up while they were both pregnant. And Elizabeth is amazed that as soon as Mary enters the room, John starts kicking. He leaps in his mother's womb when Jesus comes into his presence. Now, did John understand what was happening then in his prenatal form? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. God's done crazier things than that. But if nothing else, this was a preview of the joy that John would experience later in his life. When he came into the presence of Jesus again. Imagine John's joy when he announced to his followers that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Imagine John's joy when he had the privilege of baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River. Imagine John's joy when he sat in prison, suffering and second guessing. But then those messengers that he sent to Jesus came back and reassured him that, yes, he really is the one We've been waiting for John's life and ministry were not normal and they weren't easy before he was even born. God had a specific calling for him, a big mission that at times must have seemed daunting. Perhaps there were moments when John wished that God had just picked somebody else. But at the end of the day, Jesus was John's greatest joy. And may Jesus be our greatest joy as well. Recently, I've been reading the book of Exodus. And one of the words that appears more than once in that book is consecrate. In Exodus 13, right when the action really gets going, the Israelites are being led out of Egypt. The Red Sea is about to be parted. Pharaoh's army is about to be defeated. Right at that moment, God tells Moses that all the firstborn of Israel should be consecrated to him. It happens again in Exodus chapter 19 when God tells the people to consecrate themselves before he gives Moses the law. Joshua tells the people to consecrate themselves before they enter the promised land. Samuel tells David's family to consecrate themselves right before David is anointed king. To consecrate something means to set it apart from other things, to dedicate it to holiness. And in the Old Testament, consecration tends to happen right before God does something very, very important. John the Baptist's ministry was, in a roundabout way, a ministry of consecration. God was about to do something big. And John's job was to prepare the people for it. He was calling people to set themselves apart for God. To dedicate themselves to holiness and preparation for Jesus' arrival. Now by God's grace and by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, those of us who believe in him as Savior and Lord have already been set apart for holiness. We've already been consecrated both now and in eternity. But this Christmas season, may we examine ourselves... And be sure that the ways of our hearts, minds, words, and deeds are prepared to remember the first coming of the Lord in the past. And that we're prepared to welcome him again in the future. May we consecrate ourselves the way John the Baptist called us to. Because God is about to do something big. On top of that, may we look at John the Baptist and be inspired and encouraged To point people's eyes to Christ. To find our joy in Christ. Above all else. And to leave the sins behind. That leave us unprepared. For Christ to return. Let's pray. Father again. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. That we have together. Thank you for John the Baptist. I pray that we would repent, Father, where needed. Martin Luther said that the whole Christian life is a life of repentance. And so, Father, I pray that slowly but surely, day in and day out, by the power of your Spirit, with the guidance of your Word, with the encouragement of our fellow believers, I pray that we would leave sins behind that weigh us down, that hold us back. And that we would be more prepared for the day when your son returns, his second advent. And Father, I pray that we would point people's eyes to Christ, not just through our words, but through our deeds. That our lives would bear witness to Jesus. That people who spend time with us, people who simply watch us, would quickly come to the conclusion that we have a Lord and Savior named Jesus Christ. And Father, again, I pray that we would find our joy in Christ in a world where so many things are competing for our attention. We hear so many messages about so many different things that will supposedly bring us joy. But I pray that we would see through the charade and that we would realize that our joy ultimately comes through Christ and nothing else. Father, again, thank you for these words. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for this Advent season. I pray that you would find us faithful in this time between as we look back at the manger and look forward to your son's return. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.